Father in heaven, I thank you uh, for this time that um, even this past week, Lord, that you've let these ladies and a large part of our body of this church and Trinity and Fort Worth Press to sit at your feet in this passage and then to come today together and to talk about it. And so, Lord, I pray that this time that it would be you that would be glorified and it would be what you have for us is what you would give us in this in these moments. And so I thank you, Lord. So where my words fail, give your understanding by the Spirit. So I thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Okay, first of all, did everybody get a handout? They're right there, and it will be helpful. (laughs) Okay, I'll just go ahead and start. I know they'll be there in just a second. Um, Well, we started out in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the prologue, and uh, as Terry said last week, you know, basically John, the author, um, the apostle, wanted you to just kind of know everything at the start, Um, and so all the themes that he's going to bring up is in that, and so I'd kind of like equate that to like if you were taking a class and you were handed a syllabus, it's like this is everything that's going to be covered. Um, So at the end, this is what I want you to get. Well, really, our passage today is, of course, the start of the narrative where it's actually people, it's interactions, it's places. Um, But he's beginning to develop it. But really, there is some sense of a continuation because this is the beginning. Um, And the first thing to kind of, if you you always, you heard, you saw the, the next day, the next day, the next day, is really, this is a week that's really John is presenting you with. And so it's, uh, it's seven days, and it actually doesn't, ours is only, what we'll talk about today is only the first five days of that, and then next week when we start in the, for the wedding of Canaan, that that's actually on day seven of the week. And what his kind of heart here is doing is just like he did in Genesis 1 through 1 through 5, and he pulled you to in the beginning, that's how both Genesis 1 and John 1 starts, is he's pulling you back to Genesis. And, and the reason for, and of course, and again, the seven days, he wants to pull you back to creation. But he's doing that because he wants you to know something new is coming about. Um, so just as that, something new was coming about, something new is coming about now. Um, and so if you can see on your, I went ahead and gave it to you. So and just in case if you didn't have it, is on your handout, it does have Jesus' first week of ministry. And so like what we have covered is the first five days. We don't know anything about day six. And then, of course, day seven is the wedding at Canaan. And so in our passages, we, we have John the Baptist that we'll be talking about. Um, and then the first disciples that meet him and the interactions that they have. So I'm going to start with uh, John the Baptist. Well, what we know about John the Baptist is, and I'm going to start a little bit before our week begins, just to kind of set the stage, is we know that he's in the wilderness and that he's preaching and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, and what he's saying is that judgment is fixing, is coming. Um, and people are actually hearing him, and so crowds are actually forming. Um, and when they're hearing him, they're actually believing him. They're believing his message and what he's saying. And so, as it was brought up in the prologue, it said, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. So that was verse 7. And so they are. And so he baptizes them, and other gospels, um, it always is he baptized, and they were confessing their sins. Sometime in this, we know that, um, as well, that's brought up in our passage, is that 
uh, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And at this occurrence, of course, the heavens are opened and the Spirit descends and the Spirit rests on Jesus. And a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so by this, John the Baptist knows that this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for. This is the one that will be the Redeemer, who will be the Deliverer of God's people. And so we come to our week. uh, And it starts with, And this is the testimony of John. Now, the Pharisees, so all this action that's happening out in the wilderness, the Pharisees had heard about. And, of course, they're very concerned about rituals and baptism. And so they want to know, like, why are you doing this? And so they actually send a delegation to him. And basically, their first question, they... Some writings say that maybe we've missed part of it, but all we have in ours, it says, who are you? And basically, they didn't ask about the Christ, but he gives them the Christ because that's his witness and that's what he will bear about. And so, and at this time as well, there was a lot of messianic expectations that the Christ would be coming, the anointed one would be coming. Um, But so John, in this moment, John the Baptist just is like, no, I am not the Christ. And so he brings it right to the forefront. Forefront, and then he said, and then they finally are just like, well, you know, you're not the Christ, and you're not the prophet, you're not Elijah. It's like, well, why are you baptizing? And so John the Baptist identifies himself as that voice, and so that's from, of course, Isaiah 40 verse 3. It says, "The voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God." And so the question is, is what, there were obstacles on the roadway. And the question is, is, well, what were the obstacles? And the obstacles actually were God's people. Um, and so something, they didn't love God and they did not love their neighbors. And so we have John the Baptist baptizing. And he even says in our passage, he says that he baptizes with water, that he, Jesus, might be revealed to Israel. But we still, it's like, well, why is he baptizing? Well, baptism was a common practice at that time, um, but it was only really for Gentile converts coming into Judaism. And so John the Baptist now is applying to the Jews that are not in God's kingdom. And so, you know, basically um, he's saying that they are unclean and that they need to be clean. And R.C. Sproul kind of put it this way, they needed a bath. Um, and so that they would be ready for the Lord's coming, for it was near. And in Luke, it says, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sorrowfully, we have then recorded that this delegation that came to John the Baptist, made up of priests and Levites, sent by the Pharisees. Um, John the Baptist was a Levite as well. This is his own people. And he says to them, but among you stands one you do not know. And so this brings us back again to the prologue. And he says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So after John the Baptist, he has this, basically it's his self-witness of who Jesus is with the, um, the priests and Levites. Then the next day comes, and he sees Jesus, and Really, the heart of this, of course, which is the first thing he says, is behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I want to talk about some of the passages, the other things that John says about him before we talk about that, because that sets the stage and that lets us know the tone of what John, our author, is after for us to understand. 
Um, so the first thing that he says is, it says, even he, it's in verse 27, it says, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And so what John the Baptist is saying here is that he's not worthy to por- perform even the most menial task for the one because of the greatness of the one. And so he's basically acknowledging Jesus is that he's worthy, that he's mighty, that he's majestic, and that certainly John the Baptist is inferior to him and that Jesus is superior. Another thing that he says, he said in verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And so again, this is pulling us back to the prologue. This was in verse 15, and he said, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And so interesting, though, John the Baptist was actually born before Jesus in the flesh, um, because remember, they were relatives. John the Baptist, he understands that Jesus was before him, he has always been, and thus ranks him before him. And so again, we have a picture of Jesus' superiority over John the Baptist. And then he also says, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John the Baptist, and we know from our passage that he is baptizing with water, and that this water is really just a picture It's a symbol of the removal of sins. The water itself cannot take away the sin, and so it's inferior. But he says, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit because Jesus can forgive sins, and he is the bearer of the Spirit, and he's actually the dispenser of it, so he can give it to you. And so um, one commentator said that he will, Jesus will bring men into contact with the divine Spirit. And this sense of baptism, when you, um, it gives that feel of like abundant supply of infinite divine spiritual resources. And what's shocking at the time when he says this is that this had previously not been possible, um, that this is only something that will be possible in Christ. Um, it is this bestowal of new life. And so here we have sin forgiven, spirit given, new life. And so, again, it's Jesus' absolute superiority over John the Baptist. Later, Jesus will even say, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So even Jesus is acknowledging who John the Baptist is. um, And, of course, John the Baptist is acknowledging who Jesus is. So it's in this context of worthiness, superiority, authority, and glory that John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or, again, it'll be said, Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, This is the only time that this phrase is used. Um, It's only used by John, the author. Um, And, of course, it's when John the Baptist sees him, and we would assume that there was probably a crowd there. And so to really understand this, we want to hold on to this what's been set before us, this just worthiness, superiority, authority, and glory. And then it's in, we really want to go to Exodus 29, verses 38 through 46. And it says, so if you want to go there, you can, but I'll be reading the passages, that parts of it that we need. It says, um, and this is where in Exodus 29, this is where it speaks of what you shall offer on the altar. And it says that two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly, one in the morning and the other at twilight in the evening. 
Um, it goes on to say, It shall be a regular burnt offering, this lamb, throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord. And so it's really verses 42 and 43 that we want to focus on. It says, Where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with you, the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. So the Lord will meet with his people at the place of the sacrificed lamb, and his glory will be present there. From this passage, the lamb symbolized two things then to the Jews. First, the lamb symbolized in a reconciliation between God and his people. The lamb was offered on the altar to atone for their sins again and again. And second, the lamb symbolized indwelling fellowship between God and his people. God says he will meet with his people there at the altar with a sacrificed lamb. This is the lamb being referred to in John the Baptist. Behold, the lamb of God. And so what John the Baptist is saying is that Jesus is this lamb. He fulfills, will fulfill these roles of reconciliation and indwelling fellowship with God's people. So if we look at the phrase itself, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, It says of God, which means, so that's the lamb. This is fulfilling this reconciliation and the indwelling fellowship and of God means provided um, God has provided the lamb himself meaning once not again and again uh, takes away the sin of the world takes away means to remove sin of the world is a singular it means all sin of humanity and so on your handout I included basically the summation uh, by Herman Ritterboss, who spoke on this, and it's in this commentary right here. And it says, All that is said here in one splendid and comprehensive pronouncement is that from now on, Jesus acts and answers for the reconciliation and indwelling fellowship between God and his people, symbol- symbolized till now by the Lamb, and does so for the whole world. So this is not actually about Jesus' future suffering and humiliation. Um, John the Baptist and his audience do not have that understanding yet of the sacrifice that Jesus will make. But this is about that Jesus can act and answer for this reconciliation and indwelling fellowship between God and his people. It is about his power and glory. He has the power and authority to take away the sin of the world, that reconciliation, He will later say, Jesus will later say, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so he will perform, bring about reconciliation. And then not only reconciliation, but to open the way to God for the whole world that we may know him, the indwelling fellowship. And so what will happen now is, you know, the people um, at this time, this is what they understood the lamb to represent. Um, It was a place where they met with God. It was a place um, where he was present and that their reconciliation took place. It was their fellowship and reconciliation. 
and that's what they've understood up to this point. Um, and, of course, assuming that it will probably press on that way. Uh, but now what's happening is that, and will happen as the cross occurs, is that the place of worship will change. It will no longer be just in the temple at Jerusalem, but it says we are his temple. Um, the manner of God's indwelling, it was at the entrance at the tent of the meeting of the sacrifice, but instead it will be in us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The way of reconciliation was this continual sacrifice for sin um, to now it will be Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, and he will say it is finished. And the effect of it all is that it will be for the whole world. So John the Baptist concludes his, this section from 19 through 34, and he says in 34, And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus, he's saying Jesus is the Son of God, and that's pulling it, he's pulling us back to the prologue again. And he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's verse 14. So Jesus is the Son of God, and all that God is, Jesus is as well. And he is dwelling, tabernacling among us, so that his glory, the glory of God, is displayed in his only Son. And it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Um, and that's verse 18. And so what Jesus is really doing in this moment, what we're really to gain, is that Jesus is revealing God to us. He is bringing God to us. We get God. So John the Baptist, in these settings between the priests and the Levites, and then where he's kind of self-witnessing about Jesus, and then as he sees them, his direct witness about Jesus he bears with, and his disciples are hearing, and his disciples have learned well. And so on our day three, where it's the first encounter, and that starts in verse 35, um, we begin to have the interaction with the disciples, and they've heard this. And so in verse 39, it says, and it was about the 10th hour. And it's at this point in time that John the Baptist's disciples follow Jesus. And that one of the commentators said, this marks the division between the old and the new, between what is past and what is to come. And so John the Baptist is bridging and bringing together continuity between the old, what the people of his time knew of the religion, the sacrificial lamb, the temple, and the new, what which is beginning to come about. And so we will only hear a little bit more and then no more. He has fulfilled his purpose. He was only a voice, but he was definitely a voice. So at the conclusion of this, of John the Baptist's witness, there should be a sense of largeness and glory. Um, again, the authority and the superiority, superiority. And just that it's kind of, you don't know what all to think of it. And so the sense is like, well, glory is coming. What does this mean? What will it look like? Who is this 
Jesus, what will he say? What will he do? What will I do with him? How will I respond? And so we really at this point should be left with more answers. It should uh, more questions than answers, and it should heighten our anticipation that really more is to come. He's just getting us ready. He's preparing us. And so this, it's like almost as if he's giving you a present and it's wrapped and, you know, it's got your name on it. And you don't, it's for you and you don't really know what it is or what's inside of it until you begin to open it and see it. And so that's really where we're at. It's just like, I'm not sure what all of this means and that's what we should be doing. We should be asking questions. So we should be expectant. We're just at the beginning and understanding will begin to unfold when we see what Jesus does and hear what Jesus says. The next section then is with, we have the interactions and we have the disciples. Um, And so uh, we have a phrase and Jesus says, the first thing he says, he says, come and you will see or come and see is the same. And so really, uh, when the disciples saw Jesus, um, it was kind of like, where are you staying? You know, it's kind of like a sheepish answer. Um, like, what are, it's kind of like, what are, and of course Jesus says, well, like, what are you seeking? Um, and what he's really asking them is he's really after, uh, he's kind of calling them on it. What are you really after? And so they just kind of say, well, where are you staying? And they're kind of seeking an occasion to have an opportunity to kind of know more. Not a quick visit, something that would be longer. But Jesus' response to them, he says, come and you will see. And so really, it's an invitation. And his wording is not just come, you can see my physical place, but it's like come and stay with me. And it means to remain. And so Jesus' invitation to them is really come to me, and remain, stay with me. So when we consider, uh, you know, we've got all this about, we've heard, you know, here's all of Jesus' glory and power and majesty. And then he comes to this point and he says, come and you will see. He's personally inviting him in. I mean, you know, it's the God of glory. It's just this intimate, come and you will see. So he's giving them an invitation. And then the last section that I wanted to talk about uh, is at the very end. And it's verses 50 and 51. And so we have here, of course, you have above this, um, you know, again, this section 35 through 51 is day three, four, and five of our week. Again, this is all preparation for what's about to be seen, which will be day seven, which is that Jesus will turn the water to wine, which is basically his first sign where he will manifest his glory. Um, and it even says at the end of that, after it's done in verse, chapter 2, verse 11, and he, it says that this was the first sign that he did, that he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Um, but so here we have days three, four, and five. We have interactions. And, um, you know, as Kathleen, um, you know, well covered, you know, you basically have, they've heard, you know, you have John the Baptist's um, disciples, they've heard, and they have now followed. Um, and then they go to get the next one. Uh, probably mentioned this, but in your time, but it is 
thought, though not for certain, that it was Andrew and John, the author, who um, were the first two, just because of the eyewitness and his specifics and how discreetly he um, associates himself all throughout the book of John and only giving his identity really at the end, is that he was, it was Andrew and John, potentially. Um, And so then from that, we have Andrew bringing in Peter, and then we have Jesus getting Philip, and then Philip getting Nathaniel. Um, And so at the end of that, he says this verse 50 and 51. And so he says, so, and Jesus has a little bit manifested his, that he can see when, you know, he already knew what Nathaniel was doing, and he reveals that to him, and because of that, Nathaniel cries out, you know, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Uh, And Jesus then says, you know, you will see greater things than these. In other words, this is just the beginning, and that you and that one is for Nathaniel. Um, It's like you will see greater things than these. In other words, this is just the beginning. It's just starting. My power and glory are going to be revealed many more times. And then in verse 51, it switches, the you switches to plural, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And so, you know, Jesus starts out and now he's bringing it to the wider audience. And so in this statement, what he's trying to kind of convey is that now that he's here, is that really all of heaven is open to God's people and all that it is, God and all his power and all of his characteristics and all of his love, everything is now wide open and it is among us and it is for us. Um, and it's, it's all those resources, is everything that's to us. And so that's how we walk. That's what we have available to us. And of course, an interesting phrase, and so like... And, I'll just Darwin commentator, Darwin Jordan. He said he is the conduit of heaven's abundance. And one as well summarized it this way. The wide open heaven and the ascending and descending angels symbolize the whole power and love of God now available for men in the Son of Man. And of course, then there's that, this, that, that Son of Man. Uh, and this is a self-designation of Jesus. He picks, he takes it, it's from Daniel 7, um, 13 and 14. And, uh, of course, there's really two parts that really, when you read that passage, that really what it's about. And that one, that Jesus will be clothed by God with heavenly glory. So his glory is with him, his presence is coming. And that Jesus is to exercise God's rule on the earth. So he will be clothed in glory, and he will exercise that rule on earth. And so it's um, a big word is transcendent, but it means more than we could ever imagine. It's his transcendent power as the one who will rule God's kingdom. The only other times that we see there are two exceptions that the Son of Man is used besides uh, by Jesus, and he does he uses it over eighty times. Uh, And one is by Stephen in Acts 7, verse 56. That's at the very end. He will be stoned after this. He says it. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
And then also it will be used one other time later in John, just when the people are saying, how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So again, as we look at our whole week, it's, there's a lot of creative activity. Something new is taking shape. We don't really understand all that we're hearing. But the idea is to make you anxious that you know more, um, that it just leads you to question things. It's like, what does this mean? What is he saying? What, what's the full capacity? And so glory is coming, and it is near. Um, and so, I think I talked fast. Um, so I'll close with this. Um, and so, this is for you, for those that are in Christ. The way was prepared and Jesus came. He came with power and glory and majesty. This is who he is and this is who God is. And he invites you to come and see to stay and remain. He desires an intimate relationship with you. You are precious to him. There is so much for him to show you and show you and tell you. Greater things you will see and all of heaven is open to you. How will you respond? So let me close this in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you um, just again for your word. I thank you that we get to sit at your feet and learn of you and we can know truth, we can know clarity and not be deceived. And Lord, may you do in us uh, what you have. And Lord, may we have it to give um, that others may believe. So I thank you, Jesus. Um, It's in your name that I pray. I pray for our food as well and for our luncheon. Um, Thank you, Jesus. Amen.